Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
Today is Tuesday, November 24, 2020, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Former New York Mayor David Deakins, the first African-American mayor and the only African-American mayor New York City has died at the age of 93. We'll pay tribute to his life right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. President-elect Joe Biden reveals his cabinet picks. Some of them will break down what it tells us about his administration. North Carolina's first black female Supreme Court justice may lose her seat. She's down by 400 votes. A recount is underway. Two dozen organizations sent a letter to Biden urging him to select Congresswoman Marsha Fudge of Ohio as the first black woman to lead and the first woman to lead the Agriculture Department. California is cracking down on white supremacist gangs. We'll tell you what they're doing. Colin Kaepernick makes it clear he still wants a job in the NFL. And in our black business segment, we'll talk about, uh, uh, first of all, we'll get advice on how to grow your business. Plus, today's crazy as white person shows just how Trumpers are losing when it comes to this election. And also, Dave Chappelle says, do not watch the Chappelle show on various streaming services. I'll explain. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. folks. Uh, the Pennsylvania Secretary of State has certified the results of the 2020 election today despite pushback from Donald Trump and his allies. President-elect Joe Biden uh, also, of course, has been certified there in Pennsylvania. Trump folks can still yell, scream, holler if they want to. The reality is the election is over. Trump also has made it clear. And we also now know that the Biden transition team, they are have been in contact with all federal agencies in the Trump administration to make a peaceful transition. Joe Biden has been moving forward with his cabinet picks today. He nominated a variety of national security folks to lead, including the first woman to lead the intelligence community and the first Latino to run the Department of Homeland Security. John Kerry will be has accepted the appointment as the U.S.'s first ever climate czar. Uh, the president-elect's cabinet appears to reflect the diversity of the country. They'll serve, unlike the previous administration. Uh, now, one of the folks who also spoke today, uh, she, of course, uh, is the choice for the uh, ambassador to the United Nations. Watch. Mr. President-elect, I've often heard you say how all politics is personal, and that's how you build relationships of trust and bridge disagreements and find common ground. And in my 35 years in the Foreign Service across four continents, I put a Cajun spin on it. I called it gumbo diplomacy. <laughs> Wherever I was posted around the world, I'd invite people of different backgrounds and beliefs to help me make a roux and chop onions for the Holy Trinity and, and make homemade gumbo. It was my way of breaking down barriers, connecting with people, and starting to see each other on a human level. A bit of lanyap is what we say in Louisiana. 
That's the charge in front of us today. The challenges we face, a global pandemic, the global economy, the global climate change crisis, mass migration and extreme poverty, social justice are unrelenting and interconnected, but they're not unresolvable if America is leading the way. All right, folks, uh, again, that is right there with Linda Thomas-Greenfield, uh, of course, the choice to be ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, she would be the second African-American woman to serve in that capacity. Susan Rice served in that capacity under President Barack Obama. As I said, uh, there is cooperation taking place uh, between the administration uh, and the new one coming in. Uh, so thank goodness Trump has finally stopped fighting that. Killer Bethea joins us right now, communication strategist. Dr. Julian Malvo, economist, president emerita Bennett College, Michael Brown, former chief vice chair, DNC Finance Committee. Uh, folks, I want to talk about these picks here, but in addition, I want to talk about uh, the push for Congress and Marsha Fudge uh, to be the head of the Agriculture Department. Now, uh, Dr. Julian Malvo, there are people out there who might say, okay, a black woman leading the Agriculture Department. Well, folks don't realize the Agriculture Department is not about uh, farms. It is far more extensive. It speaks to the federal food programs and so many other things. In fact, uh, the USDA has one of the largest banks run by the federal government. So folks have to understand this is a very significant position that could very well impact African-Americans. Absolutely. I'm fudge. I call her fudge. She's my soror, president of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated uh, back in the day. But uh, she has been on this committee. She has been passionately committed to food security especially for rural people. And people forget, when people say rural, you get a picture in your mind of some white person. Black people are rural, too. In fact, b many of us, far more than we realize, are rural. And so this is a part of the portfolio of improving the status of African Americans. And it's also a part of the portfolio of attempting to reverse some of the major land loss that we uh, experienced in the um, 60s and 70s. Mike Espy, as you recall, uh, held this position before and talked about the discrimination in terms of farm loans. I think that uh, Congresswoman Fudge will be able to address some of that, not all of it, but some of it. It's, it's a portfolio that is really perfect for her. So it's exciting to me. Now, you know, the other appointments that, that hasn't been made, NCNW, nine black women's organizations and others have urged uh, President-elect Biden to... Um, Support to um, nominate Marsha Fudge, but uh, we haven't heard from him yet. So we're looking forward to hearing from him. But the other uh, nominations, Roland, I'm not jumping up down except for the sister as the UN um, ambassador, and I'm not crying either. This is a group of seasoned people who uh, have had government experience, some of whom, like Kerry, have served in the Senate, so should not expect such a hard time. Biden is playing it like he always plays, cautious. And that apparently is what's working these days. And so let's see what some of the other appointments look like. Well, here's the deal. The reality is this here, Michael Brown. Um, Joe Biden, when you look at Electoral College, sure, 306 votes. The reality is he doesn't control the United States Senate. Democrats actually lost seats in the United States House. And so this, 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 this notion of being able to govern a lot more aggressively than people originally wanted to do 
That's going to be very difficult. What has to happen right now is, can you get your folks confirmed? So, so much attention is going to be on the Georgia races because if Democrats are able to win those two seats, it will be 50-50 in the U.S. Senate and Vice President Kamala Harris can break the tie. But you got to, what that also does, though, it empowers folks in the Democratic side such as uh, the senator from Arizona, who's not a hardcore progressive. It empowers a Joe Manchin as well, because they can make all kinds of different demands, because you need every available vote. You can't have anybody on the Democratic side flip to the Republican side. And so it's no surprise that Joe Biden is going to have to uh, govern cautiously, because, again, he doesn't have 52, 55, 57 Democratic senators. Correct. And just as a, uh, as a quick note, I mean, the seats in the House that were lost were previously held by Republicans. Those are traditionally Republican districts that Democrats picked up in 2018. Max Rose, in particular, is one of those examples, and then it flipped back to Republicans. So it's not as if they were all Republic, uh, Democratic seats from the beginning. But nonetheless, they're still lost seats, understood. Um, you're right. And that's where it'll be interesting to see where Senator McConnell then makes a decision on whether he wants to turn the corner to be a cooperative, if, assuming the Georgia seats don't go the Democrats' way, whether he wants to be a cooperative partnership with the Biden administration. Oh, uh, he uh, won't. I mean, I don't know why you, I don't know why you even saying that. You know doggone well that ain't gonna happen. If he, then if he won't, <laughs> then our politics are gonna remain the same. It's gonna be divisive. It's gonna be separative. Uh, he's not even gonna confirm uh, the, the President Biden's cabinet nominees, then we're going to have the same situation. The reason why 45 appointed some of his secretaries and didn't care whether they got confirmed or not. He just put them in the seats. Clearly, they weren't confirmed and voted on by the Senate, but they still ran those agencies. And if that's the way McConnell wants the government to run, then I guess that will happen unless it's somebody that he already has a relation with. That's why I think what President-elect Biden has done is very smart. Some of the people have already been confirmed by a Republican Senate, and so they already actually know who these people are and that they can get the votes, again, whether that happens or not. And I think that's one of the reasons, frankly, why Ambassador Rice wasn't included in this first wave of folks related to foreign policy and national security, because there are some folks that didn't think she could get confirmed. Um, uh, again, Kelly, again, what this boils down to, you look at the pick for the United Nations, and a lot of people have been saying, okay, but we're not, we're not seeing more. Again, we haven't even, we haven't seen health and human services, defense, uh, we haven't seen, uh, commerce, interior, all of those agencies. And so, so far, <coughs> we've only seen the national security picks. And so, again, we're going to be seeing more. But the other thing that I said uh, on this show just yesterday, we also not just want to look at what the cabinet picks, who's going to be their chief of staff, who's going to be the number two in the agencies, who's going to be in the top tier, because that's really uh, how things actually get done in these agencies. Absolutely. I agree with you about people being a little bit anxious regarding these uh, nominations and appointments and what have you. But again, we have to keep in mind that these, uh, these positions are going to be four years long. Um, hopefully even eight. And a lot of the time, these people do not stay there the entire term of the president. Um, it, ha it happens such that you, you might have rotating. Some people may move on. Some people may resign, what have you. 
So there is always an opportunity for more inclusion, for more diversity in these picks. So I'm not necessarily worried about Biden's uh, lack of diverse initiative on his cabinet. I'm just looking for the most qualified people to be on his cabinet, because we've just spent four years with people at the head of these agencies, pretty much every single agency um, in federal government, who have not been qualified in the least bit to run them. So we need people in there who are not only qualified, but understand what's going on, who can make a quick diagnosis of what's going on, what's wrong with the organizations as is, and who are able to step in now and, and get things done the way that the federal government is supposed to function. Uh, again, that's so we're sitting here watching all of this. But again, uh, you know, these various black groups are pushing uh, uh, Congresswoman Marsha Fudge. This this is critically important here. Uh, it's uh, NAACP and others. And look, you have a coalition of African-Americans out there, uh, Julian, who are making it clear to the Biden administration that they want to see diversity. They want to see black people, specifically black women, in leadership positions. And so uh, this is just one of those positions, uh, the, this push for Congresswoman Marsha Fudge. And again, uh, I really want people to understand, when you start talking about these agencies, we're talking about billions of dollars. What happens, Julian, which I think is a huge mistake, a lot of people who don't understand how the sausage is being made, they think in terms of, well, you know, you got the White House and, okay, whatever Joe Biden says. No, but the reality is, inside of these agencies, when they are directing resources, then they are directing how dollars are being spent. They're directing various programs. That's, that, uh, that, that's crucial. Uh, the folks at Vanity Fair uh, did a huge story uh, during the Trump administration, probably in the first, first couple of years, how uh, so many things, how, how vital the USDA is. Uh, we're talking about the impact on black farmers. We're talking about mm -hmm. SNAP program. We're talking about uh, the food program. So, so again, people should be really thinking a lot broader and understanding the role that these federal agencies play and the impact on folks, uh, not just in rural America, but even in inner city America. Absolutely, Roland. Uh, the secretaries of the various departments have uh, billions of dollars, really, of discretionary spending. It doesn't have to go through an RFP. It doesn't have to be vetted. They can give someone a sole source contract if they want to for some critical need that they may not have time to put through an RFP. So that's important. It's also important to understand when you look at school lunches and things like that. Remember when, what was his name? Ronald Reagan um, said ketchup was a vegetable. And we all thought it was a big joke, but really what it meant is that there was no requirement for people to have healthy school lunches. Now, thanks to Michelle Obama, we've backtracked on some of that, but not all of it. So um, then if the folks did, you know, we don't teach civics anymore. And since we don't teach civics anymore, people do think that uh, President-elect Biden would be something like a czar. But that's just not the case. The cases is the department picks are critical. I think today... The primary focus was on international affairs, affairs of state. I'm very anxiously awaiting who will be chosen for sec Secretary of Education. I'm very anxiously um, awaiting uh, HUD. And we don't have to have HUD. Carson didn't do anything with HUD. But uh, that's tra traditionally where dollars have come to inner city communities. But, Roland, you make a very good point. The resources of the Department of Agriculture, 
are exponentially larger than the resources of um, HUD. Let me real clear, Michael. I don't want HUD. Here's why. Because HUD traditionally was the black position. Let me tell you what I want. I want the position your dad served in. Commerce. I want... Yep. I mean, look, I, 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 look, I want to I go, go where the money is. Okay? I want to go where the money is. The grand, there's money in all agencies. What I'm saying is, I'm looking at, guess what? Health and Human Services. Because you know what's going to happen? There's going to be billions being spent on COVID-19. Okay? We're talking about contracts. Uh, we're talking about the protection uh, of folks there as well. I want to see high-ranking African-Americans uh, in the Department of Defense. Pentagon, same thing. And so I'm talking about where the money is. I, I totally understand Julian's point when it comes to housing. But again, historically, housing was the black cabinet position. Uh, we saw what happened when African-Americans, transportation. Hi that's highway contracts. Again, I need people to understand, we're talking billions and billions of dollars that are being spent and black folks are frozen out of the federal agencies. We need to be following the dollar. And that includes uh, SBA, the Small Business Administration, which also has those kind of large dollars that they can give out to, uh, obviously, small businesses around the country, in particular minority businesses. Uh, MBDA, the Minority Business uh, Development Administration, which is under the Department of Commerce, also has its own little niche uh, in commerce and has its own budget uh, to also help small minority businesses. So uh, you're right, Roland, there are so many opportunities relative to these large contracts. And that's where I think it was, it was one of the things that was disappointing about uh, the Obama administration is not making sure that before he left, that he said to, I'm just using Lockheed Martin as an example, Lockheed, here's your new partner. It's an African-American business that they will now be your partner on these contracts to help build that wealth within the African-American community, because only a president can do that. Yes, you may have some conscious CEOs at places like a Lockheed Martin that may say, you know what, we need a black or a Latino-owned company to be our partners. But unless the president says, do it, or the head of the Department of Defense or uh, at the Pentagon, it's not going to get done. So you're right about following the dollars, and we'll see where the president-elect uh, points those, uh, those positions. All right, folks, let's talk about what's happening in California as part of California's efforts to crack down on white supremacist groups. 102 people now face charges as part of an investigation by state and federal authorities. According to ABC 30, the investigation, dubbed Operation Lucky Charm, initially targeted both the Fresno-based street gang, the Fres Fresnex, and the prison-based Aryan Brotherhood. Authorities on both the federal and local level took part in the 11-month investigation, with the primary focus being on cutting off lines of distribution for drugs and guns, $136,000 in cash, 90 pounds of meth, 47 guns, and 6 pounds of heroin were confiscated by authorities. This is a huge issue, Kelly, because, of course, the FBI has talked about that the greatest threat to the country, uh, white domestic terrorists, uh, ignored in many ways by the Donald Trump administration, now is going to get a serious look by the Biden administration. I expect a totally different DOJ uh, and FBI uh, effort when it comes to white supremacists. I do, too, because it has been uh, blatantly obvious, certainly in the last four years, that white domestic terrorism is a real threat to national security. And by the list of things that they had, uh, that the federal government seized from these respective uh, organizations, just two of them or one of them, I, I couldn't hear all of it. But... 
uh, just by the few that you mentioned, that's a lot of contraband. That is a lot of potential violence that could have been on the street as a result of that contraband. And it feels like, at least now, that white terrorist organizations aren't held accountable just because they're white. Um, they are the ones who are on this land now, not ISIS, not al-Qaeda, not the Taliban, them, Aryan, neo-Nazi, uh, uh, Ku Klux Klan, all of them. They're here in this country, maybe next door to you, some of their members. And no one really takes that into consideration when you're talking about threats to national security. So it is definitely my hope that the Biden administration and administrations after really take a hard look at what's going on in this country regarding those organizations and put an end to the terrorism because that's exactly what it is. Well, this is why it matters, Michael, who is going to be in, who, who is president, because that sets the, uh, the policies when it comes to the Department of Justice. And if the FBI, FBI has made clear that white domestic terrorists are going to be a problem in the future, you damn well better have a Department of Justice and an FBI, a DEA and others who are targeting them because that has a direct impact on the lives of black people. Absolutely. And, uh, and Attorney General's um, bar and Sessions mostly ignored those reports about uh, what white supremacist groups and, and racist groups like the Ku Klux Klan, as Kelly mentioned, she did the whole list. Uh, and they just totally ignored it. Uh, the uh, Justice Department didn't do anything, no sanctions, no investigations, nothing. Uh, even though the FBI wanted to do uh, more work related to them, but they, again, that they were not allowed. So now, hopefully, this new Justice Department will say, you know what, we are going to take a stronger look because they're the ones causing the havoc. They're the ones causing the confusion. They're the ones causing the chaos. And so hopefully uh, we'll have a Justice Department that'll come down on these white supremacist groups. Uh, folks, let's talk about coming down. Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma has pleaded guilty to three criminal charges and admitted it played a role in contributing to the opioid epi epidemic that killed hundreds of thousands of people in the last 20 years. In a virtual hearing today, the federal judge in Newark, New Jersey. Purdue Pharma admitted it impeded on the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration's efforts to combat the addiction crisis. The company will have to pay $8.3 billion in penalties and for forfeitures. Many activists are upset and say the family who own Purdue Pharma needs to pay a price as well. Julian, here's the issue here. Fine, you plead guilty to criminal charges. Who goes to jail? Exactly. And that's often the case when you're dealing with corporate America. They want, they're corporate because they want to separate the entity from themselves. But someone should go to get jail. When we look at the epidemic that has swarmed through our country with the oxy addiction, we, there should be penalties. There should be consequences. And so activists are right. And uh, pharma is wrong. At 8 point whatever you say, 8.3 billion, that's not enough. That's really not enough. What they need to do, which we've done in other cases with other companies, break that sucker up. Break the company up and put some of their assets into a recovery program, an endowment for recovery. Uh, make sure that they never cross that line again. Uh, th th that is the, the, the real issue here, uh, um, Michael, that bothers me immensely when you have these cases here where they plead guilty to criminal charges, but... It's like, mm, no one goes to jail. I'm sorry. What they did is no different than the people who were busted for crack cocaine and selling street drugs on the streets. In fact, they had an even greater, greater issue than what happened on the streets. And again, when you're a corporation, 
You just pay some money, $8.3 billion. Nobody goes to jail. We're all good. And frankly, this is a um, this is a nonpartisan issue because it happens in both administrations. Um, obviously, coming out of the uh, Great Recession in 2008, the housing crisis, uh, obviously all those banks, nobody went to jail. There were a lot of civil, there were a lot of fines uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of guilty pleas, but nobody went uh, on vacation or on retreat, as my mother calls it. Um, so. From my standpoint, and that's again during a Democratic administration, happened during this administration. So you're right, corporate America has a, a you know, they have a great strength, and that's their lobbying efforts uh, on Capitol Hill within the administrations, and they make sure uh, that, and jobs. Remember, they, they have a lot of jobs in these different congressional districts around the country. And so they're under, you know, they have a lot of leverage uh, with folks and say, well, if you do this to us, then some jobs will get cut, revenues will get cut, and so that fears a lot of uh, elected officials, and that's why they have so much leverage. Uh, folks, so we've been talking about, of course, the federal elections, but let's not forget state elections still matter. In North Carolina, a recount is almost complete in the race between Chief Justice Sherry Beasley and our challenger, Paul Martin Newby. Beasley is the first black female to serve as the state's chief justice, and it looks like she could lose her seat to conservative challenger, Newby. Now, Beasley asked for a recount after seeing that Newby took the lead with only 400 votes. However, as counties across the state finalized the recount, it appears Newby is maintaining his lead. If Beasley were to lose the race, it could have a major impact for the future of racial justice in North Carolina. One of the things that happened here, uh, and folks, we, we she was one of the folks who we interviewed. We were in Raleigh, North Carolina, broadcasting our show uh, in October. We actually had a chance to talk with her. And here's what happened here. So Newby, this is a video here of me interviewing uh, Sherry Beasley. Newby was upset when the governor, Roy Cooper, named Sherry Beasley as chief justice. He felt as the person with more seniority, the job should have gone to him. So what did he do? He chose not to run for his seat on the North Carolina Supreme Court. Instead, challenged hers. Now you see he's leading by 400 votes. Now, Democrats were on their way to having a six-to-one majority on the Supreme Court, but because of the surge of Trump voters uh, in North Carolina, uh, that really was reduced. Now, if Beasley loses, Kelly, Democrats will only have a four to three majority on the North Carolina Supreme Court. Why does that matter? It was this Supreme Court that ruled against racial gerrymandering. It was this Supreme Court, when Democrats took control, that stopped a lot of the craziness that was being done by Republicans in the legislature. This is an example where we talk about the Supreme Court on the federal level. This is an example of what happens when you have uh, a Supreme Court uh, that is not a hard right conservative, largely made up of white men. And so Beasley losing is going to be a huge blow to justice in North Carolina. But this also should be an example for anybody out there who says my vote doesn't count. This is an example where it does. That's exactly what I was going to say regarding local elections and state elections. Your vote matters up and down the ballot, from the top being president to the bottom being whoever your clerk is. Um, you need to vote because it matters. And uh, stories like this is why it matters. We have a, a problem in North Carolina regarding racial uh, injustice, especially when it comes to uh, case law and court issues. Um, of course, that's nationwide. 
but it, it's glaring in North Carolina. And it was evident even in this election because North Carolina was relatively close uh, to turning blue this year. And it wasn't because of, of, of Trump supporters and the like, but also because people still don't understand the power of their vote. If your vote was not powerful, Republicans would not be so adamant and so, so driven and so motivated to take it away. That's how powerful your vote is. People who do not know you want to take away the one thing that is, is your, your utmost constitutional right in this country, the one thing that you can actually exercise regularly as elections go on. So I am looking at this very closely, hoping that she does keep her seat. Um, and if she doesn't, uh, North Carolinians definitely need to be on that court's butt in terms of how they judge, how they interpret law, and making sure that the issues such as gerrymandering, such as any type of de jure segregation, doesn't continue to happen because it sets precedent. And we don't need that kind of precedent anymore. We're trying to eradicate that kind of precedent. Julian is also important because when you talk about not just racial gerrymandering cases, uh, when you also talk about uh, death penalty cases, when you talk about so many other cases. Look, the guy who was uh, accused of stealing, stealing some lawn shears in, in Louisiana, even though only because the this, this story became a national story that he later got released, but the Louisiana Supreme Court affirmed that decision five to one. Who was the one vote? The black woman who was the chief justice on the Louisiana Supreme Court. And so these are elected positions in a lot of these states. This is why you have to vote in all elections because, trust me, newbie as chief justice is going to be ruling a hell of a lot differently as a right-wing white man than a black female in Sherry Beasley. You know, Roland, part of the challenge, as you say, you have to vote in every election. Part of the challenge is a lot of people don't vote down ballot. We got a lot, a lot of attention uh, in this election at the top but less attention at the bottom. And activists have to, as we're telling people to come out to vote for, frankly, this time it was Biden, but it wasn't always, you ought to also look at some of these local elections. That's why uh, Latasha Brown is so powerful, because she basically immerses herself in communities to figure out what races people care about. And then as she looks at the ones people care about, she is able to galvanize them. This um, man, who um, the way that he went about this was nothing but mean-spirited. Of course, he has the right to run for anything he wants to run for, but his white male privilege and arrogance made him decide that he was going to knock this black woman off the chief, chief justice seat um, because he thought he should have had it. Well, they always think that they should have it. I mean, they think they should have everything. And the issue is that as our country changes, no seniority is not going to be the only way things are apportioned. People will also apportion things in name of diversity. And that's why uh, Justice Beasley was appointed. She's extraordinarily capable. She was no affirmative action pick, but she brought diversity to the table. And that's really important. Michael, um, again, moving forward, when we talk about these various states, when we see a right-wing federal Supreme Court, these state Supreme Court positions are going to be even more important and because the Supreme Court uh, refused to wager, uh, speak on political gerrymandering, kicked it back to the states, well, guess what? If you already got gerrymandering in the state level, you're always going to have uh, black folks disenfranchised and Democrats disenfranchised when Republicans control uh, both chambers and then control the top positions in the state. 
Yeah, and it's unfortunate. I'm not sure. I don't know the trivia answer for how many black women are chief justices of their state Supreme Courts, but I imagine it's not that many. And so and the fact that uh, Justice Beasley was one of them and wasn't a tight race, I'm not sure what where the money was going. I'm not sure how North Carolina sets up their ballots after a president, what comes after that. Is it, is it judges? Is it congressional? Is it Senate? I'm not sure. Um, but, but as the rest of the panel has mentioned, uh, voting up and down the ballot is extremely important, but so is money. And I don't know, hopefully she had what she needed. Uh, if she didn't, it's a shame that we didn't do enough to make sure that she had what she needed to fend this guy off. Um, so that's, uh, but also elections have consequences. Obviously, Governor Cooper is a Democrat, so he, in his uh, purview, said, I'm going to appoint somebody who leans a little more left. He did that. Obviously, this gentleman made his decision to go run against her. We should have made sure she had everything she needed to fend him off. Hopefully, uh, after a recount, things will change. Um, and all we can do is cross our fingers and hope. But whenever there's a black woman that's a chief justice, of any state Supreme Court, we should do whatever it takes to make sure they stay elected. Absolutely. All right, folks, got to go to commercial break. We come back. Colin Kaepernick, oh, don't think for a second that he does not want to play in the NFL. We'll talk about that next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Plus, we also have our black business segment, uh, Crazy White People, and we pay tribute to the late New York, New York City Mayor David Deakins. All of that next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. To develop a conscience in which you know that voting and participating is a part of the price you pay for the gift of life that you have received from the universe. That's part of the gift. We told them the smear ads were coming, and that's exactly what happened. You would think that Kelly Leffler might have something good to say about herself if she really wants to represent Georgia. Instead, she's trying to scare people by taking things I've said out of context from over 25 years of being a pastor. But I think Georgians will see her ads for what they are. Don't you? I'm Raphael Warnock, and we approve this message. I'm John Ossoff, and the path to recovery is clear. First, we listen to medical experts to control this virus. Then we shore up our economy with stronger support for small businesses and tax relief for working families. And it's time for a historic infrastructure plan to get people back to work and invest in our future. We need leaders who bring us together to get this done. And that's why I approve this message. We have to try and get to, to young people and make them matter, especially Latinos, because like you said, we're the fastest growing demographic in the country. I myself talk to people all the time. They're like, I, kids, the kids in my family that are now eligible to vote, they're like, yeah, but you know, it's, it's just such a big task. It's so overwhelming. And I'm like, yeah, we're not changing the world in one day. We're just trying to make a small difference and you do matter, your vote does matter. This is Judge Matthews. What's going on everybody? It's your boy, Mac Wiles, and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Well, the Cincinnati Bengals lost their top pick, Joe Burrow, to a just horrifying knee injury on Sunday. Many folks said, hmm, Bengals, you might want to call this guy. Colin Kaepernick hasn't played in the NFL since 2016. 
but he sent a reminder. Folks, roll a video, please. But he sent a reminder to all 32 teams that he's ready to play. This was the video that he tweeted out, his workout on Monday, saying 1,363 days of being denied employment, still putting in work with Eric Reed. still, come on, y'all, let's go. Thank you. Uh, still going hard, five days a week. Hashtag still ready. Uh, and, of course, Eric Reed, uh, he, uh, he, he played with him in San Francisco. Keep playing the video, please. Thank you. He uh, played with him uh, in San Francisco. Reed later went on to uh, play uh, for the Carolina Panthers uh, when he was released. No team uh, has picked him up, even though he had, frankly, uh, a career year. Some say that's because he was uh, he had joined Colin Kaepernick in being very aggressive and criticizing the NFL. Uh, joining me now to talk about this is Jamal Murphy, executive producer and co-host of Roten on Sports Podcast. Jamal, glad to have you here. Uh, you do the podcast with Bill Roten. Uh, look, I think it's abundantly clear. Uh, the NFL, we, we have seen some sorry quarterbacks sign in the NFL, backup quarterbacks who have no business uh, playing. You look at uh, what you saw out of Dallas when uh, they lost Dak Prescott. Then, of course, they lost uh, the, uh, the backup uh, quarterback as well. Andy Dalton to a concussion. They put a guy in who couldn't even throw the ball downfield. I mean, the, the NFL is full of crap. What people have to understand is this is the 32 owners. They are the ones who run the NFL. They control the NFL. And the reality is, uh, look, you can hang it up. Colin Kaepernick, unless a miracle happens, will never see an NFL football again. No, I, I totally agree with that. I, you know, that, that time has, has come and passed. Anybody who thought that Kaepernick would get another chance, that's not going to happen. If it were going to happen, it would have happened already. I've always said that the smartest thing the NFL could have done early on in the process would, would have been to sign Kaepernick and they could have avoided, you know, all this controversy and they would have, and they could have come out looking like they actually cared, like they pretend to. But yeah, the time, you know, thinking that Colin, that, that NFL is going to switch up, you know, their thought process and sign Kaepernick at this point, it's not going to happen. In fact, I think you touched on the bigger issue. The real issue is Eric Reed, who, like you said, had a career year last year is only 28, uh, you know, a great safety in the league. And because he uh, stood up for Colin Kaepernick and, and spoke his truth and Kaepernick's truth, he, as Kaepernick, is also being blackballed. In it. So it's like, in effect, they're doing it again right in our face. No, I use whiteballed. Uh, instead of black okay. ball, that's what I use okay, that, uh, to, to, to describe this. And again, uh, that's what you're seeing. And look, I'm, for, as far as the NFL, uh, unless they pay a price, uh, unless people get far more aggressive and saying thanks but no thanks, uh, they're just going to move along that whole deal with, you know, Jay-Z and also giving money to the Players Coalition. Nah, chump change. What they're saying is we're going to make an example out of Colin Kaepernick, uh, out of Jason Reed, basically, Y'all didn't. Y'all didn't say. Uh, y'all didn't say Toby. You kept saying Kunta. Fine. You're gonna stay that way. Yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly it. But I do. I do appreciate what Kaepernick is doing, uh, because I think he knows this also. He knows that that he has basically no chance of any NFL team really signing him. But he is keeping the issue alive. And and I always say we 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 should hashtag never forget what the NFL did to Kaepernick and, and what they're doing to Reed um, because it's a, it's a, it's going to be a forever stain on the NFL. Uh, so I, I appreciate Kaepernick every chance he gets uh, putting a video out saying, I'm still in shape. I still can play. We, we know it's not about talent at this point when you have 
people like you mentioned. You have Joe Flacco uh, playing for the Jets. You have Ryan Finley in Cincinnati. Whoever the Jacksonville quarterback is, I don't even know. You got Drew Locke in Denver, Nick Foles and Trubisky in Chicago, Nick Mullins in San Francisco. These people are not even close to what uh, Kaepernick was. And, and I didn't even mention Alex Smith, who he beat out already, who now is starting in, uh, for the Washington football team. So, no, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you're saying. Uh, and I think it is important, I think, for him to keep doing this and, and you know, to keep putting this out there. Uh, because, I mean, look, Tom Brady is in his 40s and he's still playing. And so, guess what? I say this as far as uh, Colin Kaepernick, keep, do, keep putting them out there and make them have to deal with this every single year until you physically can't play again. Yeah, maybe even beyond that. Maybe, maybe even make a mockery of them, uh, even when you're in your late 40s. Keep doing it. Because, you know, just I just commend him for consistently embarrassing the league because it's it's worth embarrassment. And, and again, they're doing it again to Eric Reed, and no one's really even talking about it, okay? This, this Like I said, a 28-year-old in the prime of his career had a great year last year because he's, he knelt with Kaepernick and continued to speak out against the league. They Obviously, the back, whatever backlash they got uh, for doing this to Kaepernick, for white-balling Kaepernick, doesn't matter. Um, it's all lip service because they did it again to Eric Reed. All right, then. Jamal Murphy, executive producer and co-host of Roten on Sports Podcast. Man, I really appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Thank you. All right, then, folks. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to uh, start our tribute to uh, David Dinkins, of course, the first black mayor of New York City, the only black mayor of New York City. First up is going to be former Ambassador Andrew Young. He is next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. I think you got to understand who's on the school board, who voted for the judge that's going to lock your ass up. How about all these people that's running around in your community that be up at, at 8.30 in the morning and you never see them because you roaming around at 3 in the afternoon? They got voted in. They go to the government office buildings that you don't know until you get in trouble. I'm Chrisette Michelle, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Stay woke. David Dickens, the first and only black mayor of New York City, died last night at the age of 93. He passed away uh, Monday evening at his residence on Manhattan's Upper East Side. During his tenure, he spoke frequently of what he called New York's gorgeous mosaic of racial, ethnic, and religious diversity. He championed economic equality and education for people of color and offered the city a calming alternative to the leadership of Ed Koch. Ed Koch, who his tenure in office was often marked by strained race relations. He's being remembered by a number of elected officials, celebrities, and friends. Here's Reverend Al Sharpton. 
The loss of David Dinkins is the loss of a great giant. As mayor of this city, it was David Dinkins that advocated community policing and safe cities, safe streets. But let us not forget he also called for what now has become a movement that is worldwide around Black Lives Matter. David Dinkins took a knee against police brutality before Colin Kaepernick did. David Dinkins never stopped standing for what was right. He was a kind and gentle man, but a warrior. He knew how to fight without being abrasive. He knew how to take a stand without being offensive. People of the white community, David Dinkins became the first black they ever voted for. Dave Dinkins was the road that ultimately led to the election of Barack Obama. There was David Dinkins talking about the gorgeous mosaic that made many of us understand when Obama said, yes, we can, because we had done it in New York under David Dinkins. I think that this city will always be indebted to him and this nation, and certainly this community. He represented the best of us. In a moment, we'll speak with Ambassador Andrew Young. Michael Brown, I want to go to you first. Uh, you, uh, of course, your father knew David Dinkins for a very long time. So did uh, your family. Just your thoughts on uh, who he was and his legacy that he leaves us. Well, first of all, I don't know if I, it'll work, but one of my favorite pictures is in my, my sister's book. I know you can't really see it. Um, it's a picture of uh, my sister's book being the life and times of Ron Brown. Um, hold on, actually, hold up again. We'll, we'll do this right. Let me let me coach this Omega through it. Now I'll go to the page <laughs> where there's a photo because you know David Dinkins was an alpha. Uh, I just want to let you know that. I know you were. I'm, I'm aware. I'm aware of the mistake he's made. That was. A yeah, mistake. yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Anyway, this, this is during the picture section. It's uh, there it is. Um, it's my father, uh, Mayor Dinkins, and Governor Cuomo. That's when my father announced that the Democratic National Convention would be in New York City. And it was obviously a big win for David Dinkins and Mayor Cu and uh, Governor Cuomo at the time. And not only did, was my father close uh, with Mayor Dinkins, but so was my grandfather. As you know, my grandfather ran the Hotel Teresa in New York. And David Dinkins was a frequent visitor as a young man, uh, as Charlie Rangel was. There's Charlie Rangel, Percy Sutton, David Dinkins, um, who all were kind of running Manhattan in particular. Uh, upper Manhattan in Harlem at the time in the businesses and political power. And he is just a pillar, uh, an incredible man, a great tennis player. At least he thought he was a great tennis player. Obviously dressed impeccably, but really cared about, as Marion Barry called, the least, the last, and the loss. Uh, he beat Giuliani that first time. Obviously, Giuliani came back and beat him. Um, so, But he was a pillar uh, in New York and national life, and he will be sorely missed. And uh, Godspeed to his uh, his wonderful family. Uh, Julian Malvo, when we start thinking about uh, that period of black mayors uh, in the 70s, early 80s, and then we go to the next generation, the Harold Washington and David Dinkins in Chicago and New York City, uh, that, that really meant a whole lot uh, to black politicians going to the next level, if you will. Absolutely. David Dinkins, uh, as Michael said, he was a gentleman. He was a gentleman. He was amazing. I happened to have the privilege of um, 
watching a couple of tennis matches with him because by, I don't know whether he thought he was a great player, but he was tennis's greatest fans. He was definitely on the on the board of USTA. Y'all stop. Um, hey, that man can play some tennis. I said, I don't know. <laughs> but I said, I don't know. But I know that he was a great fan. And um, he, just a really great guy. His legacy also, I think, as, as Brother Sharpton said, it hit the glorious mosaic. Because people used to always talk about a melting pot. Well, who wants to melt? You know, the melting pot assumed uh, the obliteration of your culture. You're in a pot and everything gets all whatever, um, smushed up. But the mosaic really talks about the strength of every piece in the continuum. Or like some people use a, a metaphor of a salad with all the different ingredients in a salad. But the glorious mosaic is just a beautiful way to talk, talk about our differences. And I think he, he really captured that. To be the mayor of New York City, our nation's biggest city, um, that's quite an accomplishment. And the fact that he beat Giuliani was a, quite an accomplishment also. As you said, he came back, Giuliani came back, but uh, he's getting his just desserts these days. Um, you, you expect Giuliani to come back, but you know, like roaches, come back. But um, <laughs> Dickens, you know, he left a legacy, he left his footprint in New York, and he provided an example for contemporary mayors like a Lori Lightfoot um, in Chicago, like uh, my girl London Breed in San Francisco and others, because he managed it. He really managed it, and he managed it without rancor. Um, we're going to hear from a little bit later from uh, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries on this, Kelly. Uh, but the reality is he had to deal, like many African-Americans uh, who become that, that the first of these cities, significant racism and vitriol. Folks talk all the time about racism in the South. Dr. King said he faced the level of hate that he faced from white folks in Chicago. Uh, he said he never saw that level of hate um, and that level of hate um, uh, in other cities. And Kelly, actually, hold tight one second. I want to pull up Ambassador Andrew Young. Ambassador Andrew Young, uh, I want to, uh, if you could answer that, Ambassador Young, where I just said that uh, the, the level of vitriol and hate that uh, David Dinkins had to deal with uh, running for mayor and then being mayor, uh, I said Dr. King said he faced a level of hate in Chicago. He didn't face anywhere else in the South. So this whole idea of how great and wonderful the North is, uh, Dinkins felt that Re, uh, uh, it, every single day he was mayor? You know, the day I came, the, the very first weekend that I came to New York uh, to be ambassador to the United Nations, I had promised David that I'd go out campaigning for him when he was running for uh, borough president. And he said, you can't go with me, you the ambassador. I said, the only way I got to be an ambassador was folks voted for me in Congress. And I said, we going. Where, where do we start? And so we campaigned all over Manhattan. He was running for Manhattan Borough President. But I go back to David Dinkins when I was a 16-year-old. He fun. came to Howard out yes, of sir. the Marine Corps, and I came up from New Orleans as a teenager. And uh, he was the dean of pledges that took me across Alpha Phi Alpha in 1949. <laughs> and, uh, and I tell you, he, uh, he took me as a boy from down south 
And because he always dressed nice and he was always so cool, uh, he made me want to be like him. Um, and um, while I was here uh, in New York at the UN, uh, he tried to get me to stay, but I said, no, I don't know whether it's, I said, I got to go back to Atlanta because Maynard cannot run again and we have to keep that seat. And it looks like I'm going to have to run for mayor, but it was, it was the friendship from really 1948 today, a couple of days ago, I called him to talk to him about Joyce passing. And um, I tell you, it's probably my longest standing friendship in the world. From 1948, 2020. And you talked about uh, pledging there at um, Howard University, him being the dean of pledges. Folks, go to my iPad. This is a photo uh, our frat brother Philip Lewis put out. This is a photo of, uh, uh, and you and David Dinkins are in this photo here, a group of alpha men there at Howard University. Yeah, I, I went there as a little boy and I came out pretty much a man. <laughs> Uh, I, I had to get the fish, finishing touches down in Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. <laughs> uh, but um, what you say about Chicago is mostly true, but the difference was not the degree of hatred. The difference was the numbers of people. It was usually a, a hundred or two hundred at most in the South, but it seemed like there were 10,000, 15,000 people uh, that were harassing us in Chicago. Uh, and so it, it is, well, race relations and racism is all about understanding each other. And it's harder to do in a big city than it is in a small town. And... I think I love New York because Dave Dinkins loved New York and because I walked the streets of Harlem. Actually, I've lived there, uh, lived there in 57 to 61. Then I came back at the UN in 77. So I, I, I like my time in New York and I love the people in New York. Um, Class. David, David, David just David helped me to meet the best people in New York. He was always impeccably dressed, uh, and the times that we met, always was a calming, uh, soothing personality. W was that how he was from the moment you met him? Uh, I, I, I never, I never saw him anger. Never, saw, I mean, he, he was always sort of just that very. You know, when you keep hearing gentlemen. I Back in the old days, alphas were taught, don't get mad, get smart. <laughs> <laughs> you use your brains and not your brawn. And um, I grew up in New Orleans right down the street from the Nazi party. So I got it from four years old on from my father. Uh, that was my talk. Um uh, White supremacy is a sickness. You don't get angry with sick people, and you don't let them get you upset. 
and you stay cool no matter what the circumstances. Uh, David lived that, and I've learned to come pretty close myself. Last question for you, sir. He, uh, he lost his wife last month. Um, he passes away at 93, and one of the things that was really important here is that he was still endorsing candidates, folks who are running in the primaries this year in the general election. He never stopped supporting the next generation of young politicians, especially African-American. Well, you know, he started in the Marine Corps before he came to Howard. And uh, he had that Marine Corps discipline. Uh, and when Joyce hit the campus, I think my second year, and David took one look at her, and he grabbed her, and he never let her go for the next 75 years almost. <laughs> David Dinkins. Loving relationship, a great family, but the whole world was his family. Ambassador Andrew Young, it's always a pleasure, sir, to have you here in Roller Martin Unfiltered. God bless you. Thank you very much, my frat brother. Thank you very much. Folks, David Dinkins uh, sat down for an interview uh, for a project that Camille Cosby led called The Visionary Project. And this is what he said in that interview about his uh, biggest regret. Listen to this. I wish that, that in, in, uh, in Crown Heights, for instance, uh, um, there came a time when I assembled the police commissioner and the high command. I said, look, whatever you guys are doing, it ain't working. And you, 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 you must, you must, and like that. Now, I am different than Rudolph Giuliani. I never figured I was the police commissioner. It's not my job to tell them whether to use 9 millimeter weapons or not, which is a whole controversy around that, I might add. Um, but uh, it is my job when things aren't working to tell them that they're not. And uh, so I wish I had told them that sooner. I wish I had told them that sooner. Uh, then there's the... Uh, Another thing for which I'm blamed by many is the, uh, the Korean boycott of the uh, Red Apple uh, store. And here was a controversy between a Korean grocer and an African-American uh, customer. And the, the boycott went on for a period of time. There was a, uh, went on too long, certainly. And there, was a, there were lines, picket lines outside, moved closer than... Uh, than they should have been. Uh, the court ruled that they, they should be back at a greater distance, but uh, we appealed that. And pending the appeal, this was not in place. Some people said I permitted it in violation of the law, which just isn't true. At, in and around the same time, there were two other similar instances elsewhere in the city, one in Queens and one in Brooklyn, a Korean merchant, African-American customer, and they got resolved in like a day and a half by the same people working for me who were working on the Brooklyn thing. But the Brooklyn thing never got solved because Sonny Carson and two or three other people did not want it to end. And they can, every time we were pretty close to resolution, it would blow up all over again. So I wish we had ended that sooner, but we, we did bring about a conclusion ultimately. Folks, that was uh, David Deakins talking about one of his biggest regrets when he served as mayor of uh, the city of New York. Kelly, uh, your thoughts about David Deakins and his legacy? Just echoing the sentiments of everyone on the panel and those who uh, uh, spoke previously, like Ambassador Young, 
Um, he was a little bit before my time, not by much, but the fact that he really did pave the way for not only uh, mayors of other major metropolitan cities, but politicians in general who are Black and wanting to make a change for this modern-day America. Um, you were talking about the racial tensions that he had to endure. It's because the uh, mayor, right before he uh, was elected, Ed Koch, I believe, he was incredibly racist, um, not only in his personal viewpoints, but in his policies. So he was already facing a steep uphill battle upon um, being elected as the first black mayor of New York. And all things considered, from what I've read and from what uh, family that I have have experienced um, under his tenure as mayor, he did the absolute best he could with the tools that he was uh, given at the time. So taking all of that into consideration, his legacy will definitely be one uh, to, to, to revere and to look back on and to study and to reflect. And him, go him being missed is uh, without question. But the fact that his legacy remains and it is still so strong and st still so inspiring, um, that can't be, that that's nothing small to look at. That is something that uh, we will be looking at and studying for years to come. So mm -hmm. I, uh, my condolences for his family. Gotcha. This is the may he rest in peace. This is the film archive, New York City. This is the uh, video where he was sworn in uh, as mayor of New York City. Uh, again, uh, so many different tributes are pouring in. Uh, all across the country. Uh, we're going to be talking with uh, a couple of officials there in New York uh, in just a second. Um, uh, Tish James, she is the attorney general uh, for the state of New York, and uh, she uh, quite bi quite busy these days. Uh, we won't get into that right now, uh, but uh, she is taking the time to share her, uh, her thoughts about uh, the late David Dinkins, uh, the first and only black mayor in New York City. Uh, attorney General James, glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Roland. Just Listen, my, my heart is broken, but what provides me with consolation and dries my tears is that he's home at rest, and he's home at rest with his lovely bride. Um, and so individuals who are married for that length of time, um, usually they um, usually die of a lonely and a broken heart. So may they rest in peace and power. Um, he was a mentor to me. He swore me in as the first black woman elected in the city of New York as a public advocate, and then swore me in again as the first black um, woman elected um, in the state of New York as attorney general. Uh, and he was my professor also at Columbia University, the School of um, Public, uh, International and Public Affairs. And uh, he will be greatly missed. Um, he led this city in its reduction of crime. He was an avid tennis player. He was from Harlem. He's one of the quote-unquote gang of four. The only one left these days right now is Congressmember Charlie Rangel. Um, I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss him. Um, he had this effervescent light that continues to shine. And so I'm going to pray for his soul, but more importantly, I'm going to pray for more 
um, individuals in public life this like was, him. This was what you posted. I was so honored to have David Dinkins hold the Bible at my inaugurations. Without him, I wouldn't be here. New York has lost the titan of our time, but he has gone home to reunite with his beloved Joyce. Uh, may he rest right. in power. Uh, he was uh, uh, always dapper. I see him rocking that bow tie. Uh, he, was he was always <laughs> clean. I, I never saw him uh, ever dressing down. Always clean. He, he used to say that when he was the mayor of the city of New York, he would change um, on several occasions because he wanted to always have a, a crispy suit on and a <laughs> crispy T-shirt. He um, always wanted to, you know, represent the best of people of color and as well as the mayoralty, uh, not only in New York, but across the nation. Um, when you talk about this next generation of black politicians, uh, when you look at the history of New York City, you talk about Adam Clayton Powell, then, of course, Charlie Rangel coming behind him. Uh, then you see this wave of black elected leaders in the 70s and 80s, and then, of course, then he becomes uh, 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 he, he becomes mayor. So, so, in, so in many ways, uh, he was that bridge for that new generation uh, of, again, those old Poles who had to deal with... Uh, the rough and tumble politics. It's still rough and tumble, but it was really, I mean, again, the level of racial animosity that he had to battle every day was just vicious. That's right. I mean, listen, there was racial animus then. There continues to be racial animus, but they had to overcome so much. You know, I worked um, uh, for 10 years under the stewardship and the leadership of then Assembly Member Al Van, who worked on community empowerment. And there was this... Um, uh, this heated exchange, or I should say, there was always this divide between Brooklyn and Harlem, the politics of Al Van and the politics of the Gang of Four. Um, and that is infamous in the annals of history um, in the city of New York. And they would always, the question was always, where was the black power base? Was it central Brooklyn or Harlem? Um, and I can recall uh, when uh, there was uh, attempts uh, to elect uh, black mayors prior to uh, Mayor David Dinkins, and there was always this divide, this rift between Brooklyn and um, Harlem. But they all came together behind the clerk, David Dinkins, who served in the legislature, was one of the founding members of the Black Caucus, and then be went on to become the first black mayor of the city of New York. And he did so much for the city of New York. And he elevated the hopes and dreams of countless number of children of color. And you're absolutely right. We stand on his shoulders. I and so many other black elected officials in the city and the state stand on this giant of a man, this gentle giant um, whose flame continues to burn in the hearts and souls of all of us, including myself. I will always remember for what he did for me and for the city of New York. And so may he rest in peace and power. And again, my condolences go out to his son. Tish James, Attorney General of the State of New York. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Got a feeling I'm going to have you on this show a lot more uh, after January 20th. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I appreciate you. it. Thank you so very much. Michael Brown, uh, I, I keep going back to that whole point uh, of, of the kind of hell that he had to deal with. Uh, and I don't think people real. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, folks, folks who've been born the last 20 years. I mean, you know, look, you look at, you know, Black Lives Matter protest. Uh, but but when you had uh, the entire police department, fire department, when you had 
just, I mean, the, the racism that was, that was coming out uh, was just unbelievable. And folks would swear, swear Michael Brown. They would swear we were operating in, um, uh, in the 1950s and 1960s when uh, Dinkins was mayor of New York City. And not to give uh, any kind of history lesson to uh, New Yorkers, but obviously New York is in the North, uh, considered Yankees. But New York was a very, or some would still say is, a polarized, uh, racist city. Um, you have different parts of, of Manhattan. Not every part of New York City is progressive and, and has a certain kind of person. Uh, you have other boroughs in New York and other sections of those boroughs uh, that are very difficult uh, related to people of color, both Latino and black. And David Dinkins was able to kind of build a coalition, at least to win election. Then to govern was the other challenge that he had. And governing, clearly, what you just mentioned, which uh, with the police that were, uh, were against him uh, because they thought he was too soft uh, on, on criminals or on crime. Uh, when he was trying to obviously lift people up and not put him put him in jail, uh, and then on the other hand, and I don't want to call out any of those boroughs, but some of these boroughs are extremely very racist, segregated places. There are some parts of some of these boroughs that you can go to and you won't see a person of color, uh, <laughs> and some parts that, and that's part of New York. That's what makes New York such a uh, incredible melting pot, but it also is a melting pot um, for racism. And so keep that in mind. I know, again, New York is in the north and, and cosmopolitan, but uh, there are parts of New York City uh, that are a bit challenging if you're a person of color. And the fact that he was able to win election, couldn't win re-election, and it was tough to govern, he still got it accomplished. Um, Assemblyman Mike Blake uh, joins us right now. Uh, and Assemblyman Blake, uh, glad to have you. Uh, we are uh, both Alpha brothers, and uh, we lost uh, a, a, a big giant, a big legend among Alpha in David Dinkins. We just had Ambassador Andrew Young, who talked about what it was like to pledge with David, with David Dinkins as your dean of pledges. You know, uh, Brother Martin, uh, you know, we, we lost a Titan today. And, and, and in his honor, I'm wearing my black and old gold and have on my life member pin, which obviously you can appreciate, you know, you know to, to be a black man in New York, a black man in politics, to be a, a brother of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, be a brother of the 100 Black Men Incorporated. David Dinkins was the epitome for all of us. Uh, and, you know, when you think about what he had to overcome to get to a place of becoming mayor, where he won a very close election in a divided city, he lost a very close election where race was used to divide. And in the midst of all of that, he still was focusing on healing everybody and, and creating unity. He was a Titan. And I, and I think about the moments that I was able to spend with him over the years, uh, including at the African-American Day Parade on last year in Harlem, uh, including just being around him at different events. And when you hear, you know, Mayor Dinkins say, Brother Blake, it, it, it shows you that there are Titans that are still among us, and we lost a legend last night. Uh, this is a photo you posted on your uh, Twitter account. Uh, I think it was at that parade. Uh, of course, uh, 
He was a grand marshal. You see uh, sitting next to uh, former Congressman Charlie Rangel. Uh, that's uh, two of the gang of four right there. Uh, and uh, of those four, uh, Charlie Rangel is the last uh, remaining one. And Rangel, also fellow Alpha brother. Uh, I mean, people, uh, pe people, people don't understand what it was like uh, if you needed something to move involving black folks, uh, those were two of the folks you had to go through. I mean, you think about when they talk about Rangel and Dinkins, you know, Basil Patterson, Percy Sutton, you know, that, that was the, the core uh, of everything. Uh, and, and, and it demonstrated to everyone what was possible when you believed. And I, I enjoyed, and you would appreciate this, Brother Martin, when, you, when you're talking to one brother and there's that other brother that just can't wait to jump in on the story, and the other brother is David Dinkins, right? And, you know, that photo was the epitome of it. I was introducing him to Adam Fane, who was one of my mentees, and I, I had that joy of saying, I want to introduce you to one of my alpha brothers who's involved in, in, in politics, Ron Jay. And, and Brother Dinkins just had that subtle laugh, like, no, let me tell you how the story really went. And... He, he just commanded the moment and commanded the presence um, all of the time. And, you know, but I, I tie it together in that when you are the first and only black mayor of the most critical city in the country and still people can approach you and you would call them your brother, that's what made David Dinkins who he was. Uh, and I just think, uh, I don't think... The current generation can appreciate the magnitude of the man we just lost and, and how uh, how everything uh, is transformative because of him. And quite frankly, it will prepare us for 2021 as we need healing because his whole framing of talking about the gorgeous mosaic and his whole vision of we need to heal and unite, that was the epitome of David Dinkins. Similarly, Michael Blake, we surely appreciate it, sir. Thank you so very much for joining us for our tribute to David Dinkins. A5, my brother. Thank you. All right, brother A5. Folks, uh, Richard Chambers posted this on Twitter. He said, former mayor of New York City, David Dinkins, has died at age 93 on St. Patrick's Day, 1991. He joined a gay Irish group for the parade. He and the group were booed and taunted for 40 blocks while crowds threw beer at them. LGBT groups were then banned from the New York City parade till 2016. Julian, um... Uh, we, we know that story. We know that 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 vicious riot led by by um, uh, Rudy Giuliani and then the constant attacks on his character. And again, if the, the parallels to Obama Giuliani are amazing, the folks saying, oh, he was lazy and oh, how New York City declined under Dinkins, America declined under Obama. I mean, the people really took the time uh, to study the hell that Harold Washington went through when he was mayor of Chicago, the hell that Dinkins went through when he was mayor of, uh, of, 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 of New York City, and then what happened when Obama becomes president, that white fear of black leadership is abundantly clear. Absolutely. It's, it's historic. I mean, if you look at the end of, at the end of enslavement, they tried to curtail us curtail our ability to accumulate wealth, to vote. There were black men in, in the Congress. And then after um, Reconstruction, well, Blanche Bruce, he, he couldn't run again. Um, so we have had a history of, of oppression. And then you add, Michael Brown said he wasn't going to mention the borough. Well, I will. It's Staten Island. 
And Staten Island has mostly, uh, not mostly, but a heavy concentration of police and firefighters live in Staten Island. And they were among David Dinkins' most vociferous critics, simply because it wasn't necessarily that he was being soft, he was being um, contextual. When you look at some of the crime that young black people were accused of committing, and as we know with the Central Park Five, everything that people were accused of did not happen. Dinkins had to hold it up, hold his head up with dignity, and he never wavered from that. But I imagine it must have been very hard for him to hear some of the insults. I mean, I remember reading a piece of The New Yorker, and it was so gross that I won't even repeat it. Um, but it was very demeaning. Um, this is a man, again, of dignity. He's your mayor. And you have some idiot writing, you know, just insults because he disagreed with him. So we, we have to give David Dinkins a lot of credit. You know, I often think that the way that Harold Washington um, was treated was partially um, the outcome of his early death. And when we look at all of these other brothers who have basically have to stand up, you look at Andy, at, at Ambassador Young. Um, one of the things people said is, you know, well, black folks can have the politics as long as white people keep the economics. Not. Um, and Mayor Jack Maynard, who preceded him, was like, Andy was he didn't hit it to him like um, like Maynard did because he probably because he pledged under David Dinkins and had the same kind of quiet dignity. Folks, joining us right now, someone uh, who knew uh, David Dinkins extremely well, a pioneer, a legend in his own right. We're joined by Reverend Jesse Jackson uh, Sr. Um, Reverend Jackson, uh, always glad to have you on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Good to be with you for on this occasion. Uh, just uh, share, share for our audience uh, your thoughts, uh, your memories of working with uh, your brother. Uh, you can't call him an Alfred brother because you're an Omega. I always got to mess with you. But uh, your brother, David Dinkins. David Dinkins was a part of a... Hello? Yes, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, a, a gang of four. First of Sutton, David Patterson, David Dinkins, Tyler Randall. The four of them in the early 30s decided to move into... Public politics. There's a brick, what they call Tammany Hall, political machine in, in New York at that time. And blacks were very isolated based upon the ethnic schemes that go on, people coming up from the South. At the end of the day, Charlie Reynolds became uh, chair of finance committee, House of Ways Committee. President became board president. Uh, Dave Lincoln became mayor. And Charlie, uh, Dave Dickens, Charlie, and became the governor. The gang of four, they were operated as, as brothers. Not long ago, Joyce died, David's wife. I don't think he could take much after Joyce. They've been together for almost 70 years. A uh, genuine brother. Uh, when we first started talking about the black rum president back in 72, way back then, uh, David Dickens and me, David and, and Basil and Tristan, they had some calls for somebody way back then. Back uh, when uh, Shirley ran, and um, they, they they were not really aware of it. They were they were at the meeting in Chicago. They would say, "Well, we didn't know about it, but we, we got to catch up, make up a lost time." And he, he had the gentle will by himself, and and he did a heck of a job as mayor. And um, he brought crime down, he expanded the economy. Uh, Juliana lied and lied on him. 
like to the people. You stand stand island uh, sovereignty. He didn't do that. He didn't do a thing for that island. Uh, but Julian was then who he is now. So Julian has defeated David Dickens, but he did by, by, by lying and scheming. With no holds barred. But David Dickens is a, a legend in our time. Um, he was mayor. Um, at a p period where Harold Washington was also, um, he followed, actually followed Harold Washington uh, in terms of becoming mayor. W what did it mean for black people during that period of the 1980s to have a black mayor of Chicago and a black mayor of New York City? Here's enough. In 82, we were doing a, a boycott in Chicago. Some of 83, I guess it was. And we asked Harold, please run. Harold said, I don't want to run. I'm a congressman. I like my job in Congress and all that. Harold, you have to run. So uh, we called the Chicago Fed's boycott. And we called the boycott. We broke down to several groupings. My job was to get the entertainers down to cross that picket line. Stevie wanted to stand down to cross the picket line. They sued Stevie. Stevie took the suit. He didn't cross the picket line. Other artists began to not cross the picket line. Harold came by the demonstration one day and said, uh, uh, I'll see you guys going back to Washington. What's your, what's your deal, Harold? Well, 50,000 new votes and $12 million on the table. We put $500,000 on the table and raised 400,000 votes in my Chicago Fence boycott. Well, in the, in the strength of Harold, given the, the, the machine in Chicago, uh, Jay, uh, Ted Kennedy and Mundell was coming to Chicago to put Jane Byrne and Bailey on the primary. I said, look, guys, we, we support you guys all the Canada and you, uh, uh, you know that. So um, they said, we have to come. These Africans say, I said, this is the, the bankruptcy of liberalism. So I remember Mandel Jackson. I remember that. Somebody black should run against them to challenge them, at least in the primary. Ooh, 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 so they can't take us for granted. They just say it, act it. So they think it was a part of, of the group. They agreed to run and put me all the way. We won New York. We won New York in eighty. We won in eighty four. We won Virginia. Eighty five. Doug Wilder became lieutenant governor. We won Virginia in eighty eight. Became governor in eighty nine. Dave Dickens. Dave Dickens chaired our campaign in New York. Came in in, in, in eighty nine. So they've all involved in the service. They've not at all distant from what we were doing. They've architects of it. Of course, David Dickens, person Charlie. Since we were older, since we were older than I was, but nonetheless, they let me in, and then they shop in as well. They did a lot of investment shopping in our development. Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr., it's always a pleasure, sir. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much for joining us to pay tribute to David Dinkins. We pay David Dinkins tribute by putting in one of us off in Georgia. Let that be the tribute to David when the two seats in Georgia. Absolutely. We certainly agree, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Another member of Congress is Congressman Gregory Meeks, uh, who uh, is there from New York. He joins us right now. Uh, Congressman Meeks, uh, your uh, thoughts about the life and legacy of the great late mayor of New York, David Dinkins. Uh, one second. We, don't, we can't hear you. Uh, there we go. Now we're good. We're good. We're good. Go ahead. We didn't have you up on our end. Go ahead. Very good. I was just saying... Uh... He's our fraternity brother and a great graduate of Howard University. Uh, but he was a man that came into the city 
you know, as oftentimes happens or seems to happen when you have an African-American coming in as the chief executive, um, he comes in at a time uh, when the city's in trouble. People forget about where we were in New York in 1989. Uh, the uh, as 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 took place with Barack Obama, as took place with uh, Mayor Washington, we had uh, the Ed Koch had ran the city into the ground, uh, and um, the uh, budget, uh, the city of New York was in trouble uh, in regards to its economy and the budget, uh, and so he was faced uh, with a lot of issues uh, coming in as mayor that he had to deal with. He had uh, what he wanted to look at in the programs to put things forward to help uh, economically uplift uh, the, the the black Puerto Rican and underserved individuals, uh, and he was faced uh, with uh, you know tensions of, of race uh, that was taking place. In fact, you know generally what stands out in my mind when he ran in 1989, he beat Ed Koch overwhelmingly, and generally in New York City up to that point. That meant that you would win the uh, mayoralty uh, by huge numbers. In fact, you know, you talk about polls, the polls had him up by 20 percent. And he ended up winning by just one to two percent because of his race. But Mayor Dinkins, ever the graceful one, came in and was looking as his deal to bring the city together, this gorgeous mosaic that he talked uh, about in New York City, try and put people in place that had never been in place before uh, in the city as deputy mayors and, uh, and commissioners, uh, people who had never been represented in the city, uh, trying to bring it together. And all along, uh, you had individuals who were uh, staunch, like Rudy Giuliani, uh, trying to prevent him from being successful from day one. but ever the graceful one, uh, he dealt with those problems, some that continued to persist uh, in trying to make sure that uh, what he had inherited, he could change and turn around. Uh, and when I think of some of the uh, uh, issues that he had to overcome, uh, he did. You know, he found a way, even after trying to figure out how to do the budgets for school and after-school programs and uh, even uh, at that time, community policing. Uh, David Dinkins uh, was uh, finding a way to get that done. Uh, and he also did it, he always did it with such grace and humility, uh, like had never been seen before, very much different than his uh, predecessor or his successor. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can always remember David loved young people, no matter where he went. Uh, he would make sure that he would take care or do things for young people. Uh, I, I got elected to the state assembly in 1992. David was still the mayor. Uh, and we uh, ended up having a program to deal with young people. And we named it the David N. Dinkins um, Community Center because of David. And he came out as mayor, you know, gracefully to make sure that uh, whatever he could do to be helpful to the people. Uh, in Far Rockaway, Queens at that time, uh, that he could give them a hand up, and he did. Um, and him, along with, uh, as Reverend Jackson uh, was just talking about, uh, Percy Sutton, uh, Charlie Wrangell, and, and Basil Patterson, the, the, the big four, were very instrumental in moving African-Americans around in leadership and inspiring us 
to be in leadership positions. A lot of that really started with Reverend Jackson uh, in 1984, his presidential run, but it inspired me, uh, and David Dinkins inspired me to, to make sure that we got political clubs and, and black folks uh, got their voices uh, out there. Uh, he is uh, an individual after he left the mayoralty. Uh, he uh, continued to be one, I know, of which I personally would lean on and call when I had issues or questions. Uh, and he always uh, was an individual who was graceful uh, and would uh, make a comment that would be very, very helpful. So um, I think history will show that at the time that he was mayor, uh, he was uh, an individual that, uh, that, that, that did uh, what was necessary to try to hold this city together given the uh, individuals and the odds of people who were trying to make sure they were pushed back against his leadership. Congressman Gregory Mix, we certainly appreciate it, sir. Thanks for sharing your thoughts about uh, David Dinkins on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Thank you, my brother. Thank you very much. New, New York State Senator Brian Benjamin joins us right now. Uh, Senator Benjamin, how you doing? I'm doing well, Roland. How are you? Good doing great. You another one of the young guns who uh, follow in the footsteps of David Dinkins. Just uh, share with folks uh, your thoughts uh, about him and life and legacy after he after he passed away last night at the age of 93. I know it's a very it's very sad. Um, you know, one of the things that I was listening to Congressman Meeks just speak. You know, one of the things that I really benefited from was you know being here in Harlem and he was always present. You know, we were part of a social club and we would always uh, meet and he would have me come sit down next to him and he'd always say to me, you know, listen, you you, you represent black people, you represent, represent Harlem, you need to be respectful, you need to be honest, you need to be thoughtful because what you do matters and people are watching you. And I just think, you know, he was so interested in, in us being civil and us and us being able to share ideas in a way that, that was respectful. You know, he always, you know, he always would say, just because people are mean to you doesn't mean you need to be mean to them. And, you know, I, I just really am just honored to have known him, um, the way he always just sort of brought me in. And I, and I agree. I mean, he loved the next generation. He, you, you would think I was his son the way he used to speak to me sometimes. And, you know, I remember one, you know, last year in the African-American Day Parade, uh, him and Congressman Rangel were sitting in the, in the car and, and, he, and he pointed to me and said, you, you know, you come sit down with us and, and put me in the car. It was like the honor of my life to be driving down 125th Street and Adam Plain Powell with the legendary uh, uh, leaders of Harlem and just being embraced and knowing that, you know, they, they believe in me and he believed in me, uh, it just, it meant the world. And, I'm, and it means the world for so many other people. And I try to be someone who's, uh, who doesn't get caught up in the nasty politics and the Trump era that, thank God, we're going to get over. David Dinkins um, really embodied civility and true gentlemanship. And he really felt strongly that black men should, should have a certain decorum and a certain way of communicating and push back against these stereotypes that people try to place on us. Um, and as someone who is, you know, looking to run citywide and those kind of things, you know, David Dinkins created that conversation of blacks being able to win citywide. And so we're all indebted to him, and he's changed politics forever because of because of uh, his his presence. All right, State Senator Brian Benjamin, we certainly appreciate it, man. Thank you so very much for joining us, sharing your thoughts about uh, David Dinkins. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Folks, this is the statement that uh, uh, Bill Clinton put out uh, today. Uh, he said, Hillary and I mourn the passing of our friend uh, David Dinkins, uh, an extraordinary public servant uh, whose lifetime of work uh, made New York fair, better, uh, and stronger. He was calm on the outside and burned with a passion uh, on the inside. 
In the face of rising crime and a national recession, he raised taxes to hire police officers, began the community policing initiative that would lead to much safer streets, started primary care clinics, kept schools open late to provide more opportunities uh, for children and supported the most vulnerable by improving low-income housing from the first time we met until our last conversation just a few weeks ago. He never stopped loving New York and celebrating its gorgeous mosaic. Hillary and I will always be grateful for his unfailing kindness and support, beginning with his welcome to New York for the 1992 uh, Democratic National Convention and including the gift of introducing us to his friend, Nelson Mandela. Our prayers are with David's children, his entire family, and the many people he inspired with his service in the life of grace and gratitude. That is a statement from former President uh, Bill Clinton with regards to uh, the passing of um, David Dinkins. Uh, folks, uh, we also uh, had opportunity to speak with uh, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries uh, of New York, uh, who also, of course, leads the House Democratic Caucus. Uh, and uh, here is uh, that conversation right here. Certainly have lost a titan in David Dinkins, uh, the first black and the only black mayor of New York City. For folks who, who are not from New York City, uh, what did he mean to African-Americans, uh, to the city, uh, for him ascending to be mayor of New York. David Dinkins uh, was elected during a time of great turmoil and racial strife here in New York City. Uh, we were dealing with the crack cocaine epidemic. There had been several high-profile racial incidents, including in the midst of that 1989 campaign, uh, the murder of a young African-American man named Yousef Hawkins uh, in a predominantly white neighborhood in Bensonhurst that sparked an outcry here in New York City and across the country. Uh, and so David Dinkins was elected in that context uh, as, a, as a healer, as someone who could bring the gorgeous mosaic of New York City together uh, and move us through the trials and tribulations that we were confronting. Of course, his election as an African-American man, the first person and only person in the history of the city uh, as an African-American to be elected as mayor was groundbreaking and trailblazing uh, and inspired an entire generation of folks to pursue public service here in the city of New York. The, the thing that, 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 that jumps out that people don't quite understand is that uh, before he becomes mayor, it, it really was this group of uh, individuals, four individuals, African-Americans, who really were the power brokers, who really ushered in uh, a whole new wave of leadership, not just politically, but also economically for African-Americans in New York. That's absolutely correct. Uh, they were referred to here in New York City as the Gang of Four, Percy Suttons, Basil Patterson, Charlie Rangel, and David Dinkins who rose to prominence initially in the 1960s when they were elected around the same time to the state legislature, either as a state senator, initially that was Percy Sutton, and then Basil Patterson, and to the New York State Assembly, Charlie Rangel and David Dinkins. Uh, they then went on to serve in a variety of different capacities, and of course, the legendary Charlie Rangel eventually became the first African-American chair of the Powerful Ways and Means Committee, uh, and David Dinkins went on to be the first black mayor. Uh, they signified a new moment of progress for not just Harlem, 
and that's the community that they came out of. Uh, but African Americans throughout the city of New York, and in many ways, inspired people toward political and economic empowerment throughout the nation. The one of the things that um, I, I saw online that, that when you compare sort of David Dinkins and Rudy Giuliani to Barack Obama and Donald Trump, and that is, uh, I always say, black success always followed by white backlash. Uh, David Dinkins had to deal with rampant racism, especially from the New York Police Department. Uh, uh, Jimmy Breslin described this vicious, this vicious uh, 10,000 people march, largely led by cops, where there was just massive racism being spewed out. Uh, and that is what propelled Rudy Giuliani into the, into the mayor's office after he lost to David Dinkins uh, the first time. You look at, again, Trump following Barack Obama. There are parallels between those two. That's absolutely right, and it's an astute observation, Roland, uh, because that is what occurred. It was a backlash toward the elevation and progress of the first African-American man who was a genteel and gentle giant uh, who governed in such an eloquent and eloquent fashion. The notion that there would be a backlash to David Dinkins, of all people, tells you what you need to know. That particular anti-Dinkins rally that was out of hand and that many observers actually called a police riot at the time, including uh, Jimmy Breslin, I believe, made clear uh, that while we had come a long way in the city of New York, we still had a long way to go. And it was frightening when you looked at the behavior of these individuals who were at that anti-Dinkins rally and thought to yourself, aren't these the folks who are supposed to be protecting and serving in our community? That so-called rally took place to protest the Dinkins administration effort to establish a civilian complaint review board to begin to address the type of police brutality and abuse of force that we obviously continue to experience today. Last question here. Uh, obviously, uh, he was a, a genteel figure for me. He was a fellow alpha. Uh, anytime you met him, he was always uh, had that uh, had that smile, had that nod and wink, and somebody who was just a classic gentleman um, for this new breed of black politicians. I mean, look up until uh, up until uh, this is he was endorsing folks. Uh, up until, so he was still involved. He lost his wife last month, but he was still involved in politics for the next generation of African-Americans until his death. That's absolutely correct. Uh, he was an inspirational figure. He would always share a kind word, a thought, uh, an insightful observation. And the last point I'd make, Roland, which is important, is that Rudolph Giuliani is often credited with turning New York City around. That is false, empirically. Crime began to drop during the last two years of the Dinkins administration, and he's credited with helping to set in motion the dramatic turnaround and quality of life that we're experiencing right now by those who actually study the numbers. It was David Dinkins who went to the legislature and got enacted his Safe Streets, Safe City program, uh, which is the foundation, as even former police commissioner Bill Bratton indicated the foundation for the dramatic turnaround in crime that began to occur 
in the 1990s. David Dinkins got it started. Rudolph Giuliani rode his success in much the same way that Barack Obama got the economic turnaround in America started. But Donald Trump, of course, claimed all the credit till he could no longer do it once it fell apart in the midst of his mismanagement of the pandemic. Well, no shock you might have uh, grossly unqualified white politicians taking credit for the work of black people. We're sort of used to that. Congressman Hakeem Jeffers of New York, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Roland. All right, sir, we're clear. Folks, uh, this is the, uh, this year, this is the um, uh, front page of the New York Times, the day uh, after he won. Uh, and in fact, it was a huge day because not only uh, historically, Julian, was it about David Dinkins winning that day, Doug Wilder on the same day was elected uh, governor of Virginia. Is Julian there? I'm here. Go ahead, Amazing right ahead. Victories on both. I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. I, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Amazing victories on both counts. And Roland, great to see that headline. I remember that day, and um, just remember how happy we all were for both men, who basically were the best of uh, black politics. As everyone has said, David Dinkins always just carried himself. Uh, with such dignity. And um, D Doug Wilder, the same. You never see these guys with jeans on. Um, you know, they, they were always well-dressed, well-spoken, and lots of time for young people. So we have seen so many milestones. I'm so glad you had Reverend Jackson on, and glad that Brother Meeks raised the issue of 1984, uh, where Reverend uh, ran for president, gave that wonderful speech, God ain't finished with me yet, in San Francisco. I was there. Um, <laughs> I was a Jackson delegate. Um, but in any case, you know, Reverend Jackson really started this tide of black people getting into politics. And he laid the groundwork for President Obama and for so many more. And he also emboldened us. And while I don't think of the word emboldened in the same sentence as David Dinkins, I think that just his, the fact of him emboldened us. Young brothers could look at him and say, if he could do it, so can I. And so there's Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, there's so many others. This is an, it's exciting to reflect on that moment in time and to just think about where we've been and prayerfully where we're going. Um, Kelly, uh, you're sitting here. Uh, you earlier said it was before your time. So uh, I take it this is uh, a uh, history class uh, that you're enduring. Uh, living history. For sure. Obviously, I, I am aware of some things uh, regarding political history and, and Black people's role in American politics, but hearing uh, firsthand accounts uh, this evening through your show is definitely eye-opening and something that I treasure, because um, if it weren't for your show, frankly, this this kind of news, this, this story um, that is newsworthy would not be broadcast right now. So I definitely appreciate this broadcast. I appreciate this program. Um, but more importantly, I appreciate those who are still here to tell the story. Um, obviously, Mayor Dinkins uh, got his flowers while he was alive, but it, it, is, it is sweet to see um, people giving, his, giving him his flowers um, even post-life, for sure. Uh, folks, uh, again, in this interview with the Visionary Project, uh, this is what David Deakins had to say uh, about losing the mayor race uh, to Rudy Giuliani. I sometimes say to people, 
that if one were to lose an election by one vote in a small town, and, or better yet, win an election by one vote in a small town, and you walk the main street the next day, each person you meet will claim to be that vote that elected you. Say, I voted for you, I elected you, you won by one vote. The votes are sort of fungible. It's hard to tell what did what. Now, um, there was an, an, an item on the ballot uh, to have to permit Staten Island to succeed from the rest of the city. Uh, that that achieved ballot status because Mel Miller, who was then the Speaker of the Assembly, and the Assembly was controlled by Democrats, permitted it to pass. Um, the Senate, of course, passed it because they were favorable to Staten Island's wishes. Uh, Mario Cuomo, the governor, signed it, which permitted it to then be on the ballot. And I came out of Staten Island 40,000 votes behind Rudolph Giuliani. The margin of defeat was in the neighborhood of 50 to 60,000, which means half of that number would have changed the outcome so that I could assign the, the total reason for loss to Staten Island and to the fact this was on the ballot. So clearly, Crown Heights didn't help my cause, but it is not the sole reason by any means. And um, if we look at the earlier election of 1989, when I, it was thought that I would not survive the primary, and instead of getting under 40%, I got over 50% against three strong candidates, and yet, in the general election against Rudolph Giuliani, at a time when I have not yet been mayor, I haven't had a chance to screw up anything. So how come I didn't do better in a city with a four or five to one Democratic enrollment over Republicans? And so they used to ask me, and I'd say, why do you ask? Now when they ask me, I say racism, pure and simple. So, and, and incidentally, the margin each time my win and my loss, the margin was about the same. 1.9 million votes cast and a difference of 50 to 60,000. Pure, but not always so simple, is it? True. David Dinkins, folks. Uh, David Dinkins uh, passed away last night at the age of 93, the first and only black mayor of the city of New York. He was a significant figure in the history of American politics, a significant figure uh, in the history of black politics in this country. Uh, and it would behoove uh, all of you who are watching, those of you who are watching us on Facebook, those of you who are watching us on YouTube uh, and, and, and Periscope to really uh, go back and, and, and look at the history uh, that the folks played, the role that a Percy Sutton played, the role that uh, the role that uh, a uh, Charlie Rangel played, the role that a David Dinkins played, the role that uh, so many individuals have played uh, in these cities, whether it's New York or Chicago or Atlanta or Washington D.C., because to understand how we got to today in our political history. You, you cannot ignore what happened before. Julian made this particular point. And one of the reasons why we reach out to Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr., an individual who uh, is battling Parkinson's um, and uh, has good days, has bad days, is because there is no Barack Obama. There is no Obama. Obama is not on a book tour without a Jesse Jackson Sr. 
there's no Jesse Jackson Sr. unless there's a Harold Washington. There's no David Dinkins without a Charlie Rangel, without a Adam Clayton Powell Jr. No one just all of a sudden wakes up and then they walk into a position. There are those before them who made it possible. You heard Ambassador Andrew Young say on our show that he became mayor of Atlanta after Maynard Jackson served two terms. But we have to understand this generation is that just because you were born yesterday does not mean that you have no understanding of what took place before you got here. It's really incumbent upon us to know our history. Because when we know our history, when you know what took place with Rudy Giuliani and David Dinkins, then you can put into context what Rudy Giuliani is doing today to team with Donald Trump to snatch black votes away in Wisconsin. They've now filed a new legal challenge in Wisconsin. They failed all over the country. They failed in, in Atlanta. They failed in Philadelphia. They failed in Detroit. But you need to understand who they were then to understand who they are now. And so that's why we took the last hour to pay tribute to David Dinkins. We could have easily done it for 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, but the reality is it's important for us uh, to, to share these stories with a whole new generation of folks who didn't know. Uh, and you go to my iPad here, and certainly for me, uh, he was an alpha brother. He was a life member. Uh, so am I. It was always great to see him. It was always great to talk to him. And he now transitions to the Omega chapter. Uh, and we thank him for his life, for his service. As I said, his wife Joyce, of 53 years, she passed away. She passed away last month, just a month ago. And now he is no longer with us as well. We'll be back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. We told them the smear ads were coming, and that's exactly what happened. You would think that Kelly Leffler might have something good to say about herself if she really wants to represent Georgia. Instead, she's trying to scare people by taking things I've said out of context from over 25 years of being a pastor. But I think Georgians will see her ads for what they are. Don't you? I'm Raphael Warnock, and we approve this message. When you hear about sisters like that, who are modern-day Fannie Lou Hamers, modern-day Septimus Clarks, modern-day uh, Diane Ashes, how does it make you feel? <laughs> Go ahead, bro. Go ahead. You know who I like? Angela Rye. Mm-hmm. And I think because she speaks to the voice of this generation. Mm -hmm. So she's young enough to, to still remember what that is, but yet old enough to be able to speak it in a way in which we respect as well. 
I think it's time for women to stand up. I think behind a powerful man is also a powerful woman. I think and believe in being evenly yoked. And I believe in teamwork makes the dream work. So you can't do it by yourself. And it's been proven. So now we have to stand up. We have to, being a new millennial woman, you got to be able to be independent. So if you're independent and you're standing by yourself, you have to mobilize each other and say, okay, I need you, I need you, and us together is more powerful together. You are watching Roland Martin, and I'm on his show today, and it's, what, huh? We should have some chew cards. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your boy, Jacob Lattimore, and you're now watching Roland Martin right now. E. Prior to COVID, there are 2.6 million black-owned businesses in America. 2.5 million only have one employee doing average revenue of $54,000. We often tell you these things uh, because it's important for us to understand black economics. Well, my next guest uh, is on a mission to help black businesses grow. His current focus is on economic development in the state of Illinois. His projects include the Fair Access to Credit Initiative, a minority business readiness program with rapid ratings and a youth entrepreneurship challenge. Economist Dr. Malcolm Adams joins us right now. Doc, how you doing? Great. How are you? Uh, great. First of all, when you talk about where uh, you see black businesses in Illinois, always had a great history, uh, of course, coming out of Chicago. Where does it look uh, today in 2020? Uh, Chicago, I mean, like, as of today right now, when you look at, you know, the post-COVID uh, era that we're in, it's pretty grim. However, uh, at the same time, COVID, when people got laid off or they, you know, they lost their jobs or people who work for other people in their business didn't make it, they started other businesses. I mean, I saw the other day where there was a seven-year-old girl who started a business just reading to people on YouTube. So there's a, the, the wealth gap has, like how they say when there's chaos, there's opportunity. There's been a lot of opportunity spurned. And one of the opportunities uh, as far as economic development has been actually people purchasing properties. So when we, so when we talk about, obviously you're speaking of real estate there. Uh, and so are we seeing, uh, are we seeing actual growth? Um, again, you know, we know historically, we can talk about uh, hair care products, we can talk about Reggio's Pizza, we can talk about uh, Johnson Publishing Company, we can, we can go on and on and on. Of course, now when you talk about uh, Loop Capital uh, with Jim Reynolds, we can talk about Era Capital Management, uh, John Rogers as well, uh, but are we seeing really the next wave of black businesses in Chicago and Illinois with capacity? Or are we basically recreating the wheel again, which is part of the problem for African-Americans, that we don't see the multiple generation of big business growth? It sort of starts and stops. Really, we wouldn't really have to recreate the wheel. What has actually been happening um, with, you know, the you have the Black Chamber of Commerce, what's actually been taking place is there rose the opportunity to actually strengthen Black businesses by giving rise to what was necessary, you know, during the Jim Crow era, uh, right after slavery ended, like entrepreneurship has happened out of necessity is what's happening. And w when you look at even businesses being started or being strengthened in order to strengthen, like no business can scale without people. So you have to have job creation. 
So again, right, right, yeah. right. But 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 again, but but you have a business. You're, you're creating the job creation. But what I'm saying is, um, what are we seeing there? And and the program that you're doing. Are we seeing the development? Are we seeing the growth? Uh, are we seeing them build? Uh, and, and, and who's actually doing it? What are we seeing? We're seeing in different areas, uh, it's particularly real estate where it's taking place because without having the real estate, there's nowhere to place the business unless it's, you know, it's web-based. You have to have a place for people to show up and work. Yeah, that, that, so, that, yeah, yeah. Those are brick and mortars there. So, um, and so, what is your research research showing? And 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 beyond real estate, uh, where where's the growth that's happening there in Illinois for black businesses? In Chicago, there is a bit of growth as far as when you get to more towards central Illinois, like. Peoria, which we know is the third fastest shrinking city in the country, there isn't any. It's actually uh, dying, so to speak. And they brought me and a few other people in to basically use the resources that are there because, like, it. The, and I, the reason why I keep going back to real, real property is because economic development is land plus labor plus capital. If there isn't, it's just like with the community development financial institutions, if there isn't a place for it to happen or you know if you're, if you're not if it if there's no sustainability which means it can scale the capital isn't going to come and there and we found the funds it's just a matter of getting the right powers that be to support the actual initiative in many cases okay and so so the initiative okay so the initiative you're talking about how much capital are we talking about uh, and what is being done to access it? So, so what's exactly, what's the actual initiative? What's the program? How is it happening? There you go. So what we're doing is, you know, when, whenever there's research, which you asked about, naturally there's an anchor institution. So we're partnering with several anchor institutions, be they Bradley University, uh, Illinois Central College. Uh, I, I had a meeting with the president there. She's I'm not going to say publicly that there's absolute buy-in, but it's in review and a few other things because they do have the agro lab. And if you go outside of any city in Illinois, you're looking at farmland, period. So the best thing to do there was to come up with an agro tech program because everything's going towards tech and you have the you know, the land, the, the farmland there and their resource and it's mineral rich because uh, in many areas it's right on water especially when you get closer to the Great Lakes or the Illinois River. So with that, we were able to get certain businesses to come in, like Precision Planting, which is basically Central Illinois' Silicon Valley, to pay more attention to involving programs that are already there, kind of doubling down on what was working before COVID actually hit, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel. Where can folks get more information on the initiative? Uh, the... I, uh, the Illinois State Black Chamber of Commerce website, IB, ibcc.org. Uh, they can contact me directly. And there are a few articles out on it. Uh, let's see. There's also going to be an event here very soon in Central Illinois. We're actually planning it right now. Most likely it's going to have to happen online. But yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So we'll, we'll, yeah, so we'll see. We'll simply see if we get to the website of where they can get more information uh, about that. Uh, again, so the Illinois Black Chamber of Commerce website. Yes. Okay, Dr. Malcolm Adams. We appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot.
Thank you. All right, folks, you know what time it is? You know what time it is? Y'all know what time it is. Crazy-ass white people. I don't understand why we don't have it. It was on today's script. Anyway, we normally have it, our crazy-ass white people stinger. All right, y'all, let me go ahead and do this here. So, you know, these Trump people are really losing their mind, like losing their mind. Here's this crazy fool out of New York who just can't handle he lost. Good morning, we the people. Who's ready to go to Washington, D.C. tomorrow? Huh? Who's going? Show of hands. Put it underneath my post. Who's going to Washington, D.C.? Because the media don't get to call a fucking election. We the people voted. We the people get to pick our president. Okay? So this is coming to an end with the fraud and the corruption and everything on the left. Because I told you, I warned you, that a vote for Biden is a vote for Obama's third term. Did you hear Chuck the fucking schmuck Schumer? Let's change America. That's what you get. That's what all you motherfuckers on the left get for voting. For voting for fucking Biden. Okay? We know he didn't win legally. We know he didn't. We know about the stealing and the corruption and slur of the house. You can keep watching Fox fucking news because we don't watch it no more. Okay? Trump 2020, motherfucker. Fuck out of here because I'm going tomorrow and my voice will be heard and I will be passing out letters. Julian, these people are a <laughs> little unhinged. Here's the deal. Julian, I don't want to be driving behind this woman. I mean, it's a wonder that she was able to um, keep her car straight. I was cracking up. First of all, she had a filthier mouth than anybody I know. I mean, filthy. And secondly, you know, Chuck Schumer, she got to go there. But the driving part is really rolling. That does take the cake. Who drives with one hand? And I, where who's, who's holding the phone or recording this or something? She's really crazy. But, you know, you said crazy-ass white people, and you found one. They, I'm, I'm telling you right now, Kelly, I keep trying to tell these people. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci tweeted, Trumpism is over. No, it's not. Trumpism is now well. the Republican Party. They have, well, they have melded together. These folk ain't going away. They are nuts. I would venture to say that Trumpism is actually just beginning because... What happens when you have a demagogue or or some type of cult leader, their influence isn't necessarily in the moment that they impart their doctrine and their antics. It's really after the fact and when they are basically entered into some form of martyrdom, so to speak. They don't necessarily have to die in order for that to happen. They just have to be out of the immediate spotlight, right? So what's happening right now is the beginning of Trumpism and, tr and Trump uh, doctrine, if you will. Has the Republican Party fallen into that? I would venture to say so. Um, if anything, they will be the vehicle to keep uh, perpetuating said Trump doctrine and Trumpisms and the like. So if anything, this lady is actually kind of falling in lockstep with the plan, whether it's proverbial or otherwise, to to keep that message going and to keep Trump alive and relevant and viable 
in the minds of so many other obviously ignorant people. But what I'm saying, Julian, we have to understand, we guys, that this is not about Trumpism. Trumpism is the Republican Party. We need to understand these people are not going to go away. They're going to be driving Republican Party politics. So all of these Democrats, Joe Biden, all this talk about back to normal or, hey, once Trump goes away, Republicans are going to return the way they used to. No, they're not. This is going... If you thought Sarah Palin began the craziness and then Trump then comes in, crazy is about to follow. Folks, simply better brace for it. You know, Kelly is right about Trump not going away. What we have to look at, he keeps saying he's going to run in 2024. First of all, he better pray that he's still alive in 2024. But in any case, Hello. he says he's going to run. So he's got all this, got, he's raising money, however, to theoretically challenge uh, Wisconsin. I mean, he's been doing all these challenges. Now, if you look at the fine print of the stuff that he's sending out, these emails, the money is going to him. I mean, it's going to his next campaign. It's not going to count, um, you know, to go to challenge ballots. So he is basically ginning up his bases. So you saw that crazy lady. There are millions of her. I mean, the challenge is how did we get 70-some million people who voted for that crazy man. Now, I would say maybe 20 million of them, maybe a couple fewer, maybe they truly believe in Republicanism as opposed to Trumpism, and they're ride-or-die Republicans, but most of them are unhinged, and we just saw that. Uh, trust me, you're going to see a lot more of that. Kelly, Julian, and uh, Michael had to go. I certainly appreciate y'all joining us today on Roland Martin Unfiltered Art, folks. Uh, if y'all want to support what we do, please do so by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar you give goes to support this show, uh, the work that we do, the gear that we buy, the staff that we hire, and really trying to do this here. Look, I, you know, these other networks, uh, a few of these networks, they, they've done D David Dinkins tributes, uh, five, ten minutes. But look, we want to be able to honor our own. That's why we have this show doing that one-hour tribute. That's why this matters. You can support us by going to Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, PayPal.me forward slash RMartin Unfiltered, Venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered. You can send a money order to New Vision Media, NU Vision Media, Inc., 1625 K Street Northwest, Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006. You can also support us via Zelle uh, by sending an email, Roland at RolandSMartin.com. If you want to do the memberships, for us, right here on YouTube and Facebook, you can do the same thing as well. All right, folks, I shall see you guys tomorrow. Have an absolutely great evening. Holla! I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home financing provided by victory mortgage llc nmls 461249 equal housing lender we went from normal life healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or b-cell all the saint jude team came up to get cj via ambulance shortly after that i noticed a rainbow it meant that there was hope we were driving into hope To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.